Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to them that are nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. All right, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, God, I thank you for this message. Lord, I thank you for your uh, word and how it's spoken to me. God, and I pray your Holy Spirit's power would be evident in here today. God, I pray that hearts would be sensitive, that we'd have uh, ears to hear, Lord, eyes to see. And God, I pray that we'd submit everything you request of us to you. In your name I pray. Amen. Now, just to uh, reiterate what was covered by uh, Pastor Joel in chapter number one, uh, he did a really great job of letting us know all the inventory, all the good things that we have and that are found in the person of Jesus Christ. And in the latter half of the chapter, it discusses Paul's prayer for the church, and that is that they and that we should know the power of God that is working in our lives. The same power that's over every other power, the same power that rose Christ from the dead, is the power that's at work within us. Then we get into Ephesians chapter number two. We covered the first 10 chapters last week, and that gives us really a strong contrast of really, as we talked about, a really dark place in life that we used to be. It's a spiritual biography, but then it talks about a great life that is brought about by the grace of God. It talks about how we were dead in trespasses and sins and brought alive by the grace of Christ. And here we're going to see something very similar to what we saw last week. It's going to kind of build up of case, and it almost seemed like it's going to despair, but then it talks about the hope that we find in Jesus Christ. So we see first that we were separated. It says that we were called uncircumcised by the circumcised. The first half of verse 11 says, Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past, Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision. During the time of Abraham, the very beginning of the written Old Testament that we have, God gave him specific promises, specific covenants that would be given to him and his seed after him, and that was to be made visible by this idea or this, this practice of circumcision. And it became really a form of national identity they took a lot of pride in. At, in fact, you might look at it as when we get married, we wear wedding rings, right? Um, I have a wedding ring, but mine shrunk, aka I got fatter, so it doesn't fit right now. But the idea is we can show to the outside world that I made an oath to my wife, my wife made an oath to me. And so the circumcision is something that God had Abraham do 
to sh really show that, hey, you're the people of God. I made a covenant with you. I made an oath with you. I need you to make an oath with me. And so they did this. Genesis 17:10 says, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man, child among you, shall be circumcised. And we see that for the Jews to call someone uncircumcised was actually considered an insult. 1 Samuel 17, 26, And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine, and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Because from the Jewish perspective, those who weren't circumcised, they weren't the people of God. And because they weren't the people of God, you could almost look at that equivalent today as almost using like a racial or religious slur. So they were insulting people by calling them uncircumcised. But there's some irony here. Because while they were being judgmental about everybody else and where they were at, Simply because they had the sign of circumcision, we see that biblically, while they had an outward appearance, they were actually lacking inward substance. Romans 2.28 says, For he that is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, and not in the letter whose praise is not of men, but of God." So while they're going out there because they have this like physical sign saying we're the people of God, they're looking down at other people and criticizing them, being judgmental of them, God says that yes, this was given as an outward sign, but you're lacking the inward substance. What God really wanted, what was more important than the outward signs was that you had a new heart. Circumcision, they talk about the idea of cutting of the flesh, and so the new heart being dying to the old sin and having a new life truly being dedicated to God in the heart. And of course, that will show on the outside, but God wasn't just looking, as it says in Romans, for something that could bring praise about for men because they physically see it, but it's the hidden man of the heart, the things that people can't see, the dedication you secretly have to the Lord that only he sees, a praise that would come from God. You know, maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior. And the truth is, is, Maybe you've grown up in a religious home. Maybe you've grown up in a moral home and you would say that things don't really look that bad and you have the outward appearance of righteousness. But if we go back to what we talked about last week, the Bible says that we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We all have a sin nature. We have all sinned and we lived in rebellion against God. And because of this, we were under the wrath of God. And it's easy to have these outward signs of of moralism or the outward signs of religion trying to earn favor with God, but we forget that it's not a matter of accumulating righteousness to get into heaven. It's only by his grace. We make the mistake of thinking that we can actually do anything good for God because the Bible says all of our, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. The truth is, is we can't even begin to earn merit with God. Forgiveness is only found in Jesus Christ. And yet there are people who are trusting the outward signs and it's very easy to fall into the trap of what the Pharisees were doing in the times of Jesus because Jesus saw them and he says, look, you have a beautiful appearance. On the outside, you're like painted sepulchers or whitewashed tombs. Or he says, but while you're beautiful on the inside, on the inside, you're just full of dead man's bones. You have an appearance of something that is beautiful, but God sees our hearts and he sees the sin that is in our heart. He sees the darkness. He sees the corruption. He sees the rebellion that we have against him. 
So while it's easy to be judgmental towards other people and have this moral appearance, the truth is, is that we've all had sinful hearts. The only thing that separates a Christian from a non-Christian is merely the grace of God. But we also see that we were strangers to the promises. Verse number 12 says that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. There's a saying that's in the Bible. It states that salvation is of the Jews. Why does it say that? Because the promises were given to Abraham, and it was through Abraham and through his lineage that salvation was going to come. And so when it talks about being strangers and foreigners, it also talks about being far off. And so the Jews were near to the promises because it was given to them. And as the Romans states, the oracles of God were given to them. So they knew what the truth was. But the Gentiles, that's everyone who's not a Jew, was far off, separated. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to go through all of it, but I want to go through the Abrahamic covenant just to explain what these promises were that were given to him. And Genesis 17, 7 through 9 says, And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee and their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God, and God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. And Genesis chapter 22, verse 17 and 18 says, that in, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemy, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Is an idea of the promise that was given to him of land, seed, and blessing. There's the Palestinian covenant or promise that they would be given a certain amount of land, which historically, even to this day, they still haven't been given yet. But there's also the promise of the seed. The individual seed we know from the book of Galatians was actually the promise of the Messiah. It's Jesus Christ. But then there was the promise of the blessing. And we saw the last portion of Genesis 22 that through Abraham... All the nations will be blessed because it wasn't in God's mind to only save Jews. He wants to save everybody. He wants to save both Jews and Gentiles. But look at the state that we were in. It says aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants, having no hope and without God in the world. This is a lot like what we read about last week where it talks about this darkness, like this really, this, this state of despair. But then it contrasts with absolute hope. I love it. In verse number 13, it says, keeping all these things in mind and how we are separated from the covenants of promise and how we were aliens and without hope in the world. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. And we see something very similar to this in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children, and here's the similar phrase, and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call, and with many other words that he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. 
In chapter 2 of Acts, Peter's primarily preaching to Jewish people, and he says that you need to repent, you need to change your mind about your sin, turn from your sin, turn solely in faith to Jesus Christ, and then obedience afterward, not for salvation, be baptized. And he's like, and the promise of the Holy Spirit, the sealing of the Holy Spirit that comes, that gives us new life, is promised to you and to your children, but then he also says to those who are far off. So he's saying the promise of salvation, it wasn't just for the Jews, it was also for the Gentiles. The promise of salvation was for everybody. I think John the Baptist makes this very clear in the early portions of the book of John when he says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So we see that Jesus breaks down walls. Verses 14 and 16 says, For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, that he might reconcile both into God and one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Now, if we go through the Old Testament, you'll notice there was a lot of strange and unusual laws, if we're being honest, that were given to the Jews. Like, for example, they weren't allowed to mix different types of fabrics. Uh, they had a special haircuts, and if you go online and check it out, they even have a special way that they were supposed to cut their beards. Like, if you, if you see it, it's like these long ringlets that come down from their sideburns, and they, and they hang down. And I like, I like, you know, growing some facial hair, but that's probably not a style I would pick. Um, it does look a little bit unusual. Uh, and then the law that would really separate me from the nation of Israel was their dietary laws, because I eat everything. I'm a huge foodie, and being told that I couldn't eat pork, I mean, then what happens to carne asada, you know? Or uh, there's just a lot of things going on that I would have a hard time with some of these laws. And these laws were also very strict towards the Gentiles who were entering the land. In fact, there was a saying that was written around the temple, and it was basically a warning telling the Gentiles, as you approach the temple, you do so at your own peril. You do so at your own risk. And as you read through the Old Testament, you see that, yes, people from outside of Israel were allowed to worship a God, and indeed he wanted them to. But if they violated any of the rituals, if they violated any of the laws, they would actually be put to death. And so there was this barrier caused by the laws and commands. But Jesus, when he died on the cross and he paid for our sins, he broke down these barriers. So now both Jews and Gentiles, everyone can worship to God equally together because of the blood of Jesus Christ. It says that he, preaches, or he preaches peace to both and came and preached peace to you which were far off and to them that were nigh. Jesus breaks down racial barriers. Now, I want you to think about the historical context of the churches that Jesus was writing to. These churches were made up of people from many different nations. During the Roman Empire, if, if nations didn't submit, then they were usually attacked and overrun, and oftentimes these people would be displaced from their lands and put into foreign lands in order to really kill any sense of national identity that they had. And you'd have to imagine that sometimes in these churches were probably groups of different people that at one time were actually warring against each other. 
And so he's writing letters to churches that are made up of a lot of different people. And I think there's a mistake sometimes we have where we look at the United States and we only look at in our portion of history and we think that racism, this idea that certain people are better than other people is only unique to the last 200 years. But we fail to realize that historically, since the fall of man, racism, this idea of tribalism, this fruit of hate that's brought about because of the flesh and the natural state that we are in when we were in our sin has always been around. Tribes against tribes, people hating other people, nations against nations, genocide in every country of the world throughout history. This problem isn't unique to the United States, and it's not something that we can say, oh, this is just something that's really, we need to address the last 200 years. Can I tell you, this has happened since the very beginning of time. From the fall of man, we want to talk about things that are systemic. Let me tell you, biblically, what is truly systemic is sin. Sin that is in our hearts. And it is sin that produces the product of racism. The Bible talks about this. We discussed this last week about the condition that we were in, that we were dead in trespasses and sin. We were enslaved to our sin nature. In other portions of Scripture, it talks about what the deeds of the flesh are. And one of those is hatred. By being away from Christ... Before we know Christ, we have a propensity to hate. And no one is innocent of this. This is something that's happened during the fall, and it affects every human being on this planet. But it's also because of his blood that reconciliation and repentance of these offenses can be found. See, when Jesus broke down this wall of enmity, he... He's really destroying hostility by the cross. And when our relationship with God is made right, at the same time, God says that our relationship with fellow man can be made right. Because we're given new hearts, we're given new minds, we're being renewed into his image. But it's why I have a problem with some of the philosophy that's, being crept, that's really creeping into churches. It's why I have a problem with some of the philosophy that's really taken the secular like colleges and really just industries by storm. And it's because they want to talk about grievances and they want to talk about the sin, but they never actually have a roadmap for redemption. It only talks about the problem, but it never talks about the cure. And it's not asking for people to repent. It's actually asking for people to practice penance. They want people to mourn how they were born. They want people to mourn for the rest of their lives like the sin is hanging over their heads. Can I tell you that from the biblical worldview, if this is being preached at a church, it's not biblical. It is, in fact, antithetical to what the gospel is because the gospel brings about repentance, but at the same time, it has forgiveness. You have to have both. And it's at that time when we first repent and put our faith and trust in Christ that we are given a new heart, and that will allow us to be sensitive to sin. And as Christians, we do need to be sensitive to sin, regardless of who you are. If we do sense racism is creeping up in our lives, we need to make sure we are repenting of it. If we see someone who is committing racism, we need to make sure that equally we condemn it. But if we're on the receiving end of it, when that person sins, we need to make sure that we also forgive it. It's not for us to hold sin over other people's head because what does the gospel teach? That once you trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, that that sin is separated as far as the east is from west. And if the God of heaven can put sin to death and forgive sin, who are we to keep on condemning people for sins they've committed in the past? 
It's unbiblical. It's antithetical to the gospel of grace that teaches us that we find mercy, that our sins are forgiven, and it allows us to forgive other people. But we'll see that once we are in Christ, that it's important that we live consistent with the new power that's in us. We need to live out the gospel in our lives, and we see this because the Bible also teaches that we are one in Christ. We are a part of the same citizenship and household. Verse 19 says, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God. It says that we were part of the same citizenship. Remember, these people were all from different kingdoms, all from different nations, and they were kind of forced together under the Roman Empire. And sure, there was a lot of division, but we, what we don't see the Apostle Paul doing is elevating the division. What does he say? He says during a time when people were really kind of having an identity problem, he says that at one point in our lives that we were actually parts of the kingdom of darkness. We served our flesh and we served under the rule of Satan. And he says, now that after you've trusted Christ and you are in him, you are now part of God's kingdom. You are part of the kingdom of light and we are united under the kingdom of God. So if you are Christians within this church, we are fellow citizens. We don't lift up the differences in nationalities because biblically we are now part of the same nationality. Citizens of the kingdom of of God. Paul kind of uses a play of words here. He talks about strangers. These are people who have no rights. He talks about alien, like aliens. These are people who had like some privileges, but weren't really full citizens and didn't have protection. But then he uses the word citizens, and that is to have full privileges and protection. See, during this time in the, in the Roman world, while they were no longer citizens of their own nations that they came from, they were striving because like a goal for a lot of people was if, if I can become a citizen of Rome, then I have all the benefits and all the protections. And so Paul is using a play of words. So at one time, you were a part of the kingdom of darkness, and we were separated naturally in our hearts because of sin. We were separated from each other. We were separated from God, the division being caused by sin, and all of us but now, in Jesus Christ, we are all brought near. We are all part of the same kingdom, and that comes with all the same rights, all the same protection, and all the same privileges that are found in the kingdom of God. But you know, it goes even further than that. It says that not only are we fellow citizens, that everyone in the church of God, we're family. You want to talk about breaking down barriers— when someone's in Jesus Christ and when he died and he destroyed the hostility, he took people who were enemies to himself and enemies to each other and he made us all family. That is not something that's elevating differences. That is not elevating things that are divisive. Instead, it is saying we are all part of the family of God. Ephesians 1.5 says, Having predestined us into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, I know most of us like to watch or hear about good adoption stories. Um, when I was a kid, the two movies that come to my mind are Oliver Twist and Annie. Now, okay, that does predate me, so 
I mean, I hope I don't look like I was born in the 1940s or whatever that was, but um, that being said, I do like watching older movies. And don't answer that question that I asked earlier about what I look like. Anyway, the stories are very similar, and I personally think Annie's kind of a knockoff of Oliver Twist. I mean, let me think about the storylines. They're so parallel to each other. You got an orphan who's poor, they're being abused, and then somehow, through circumstances, they both meet a rich dude, and this rich dude will adopt them and make them full children, and all the needs that they could ever want will be taken care of. And really, all the wants they could ever want, for the most part, would be taken care of. And it shows us extremes of being in poverty and this super happy ending because now these kids who are in poverty who didn't have a family now have a father. Not only do they have a father, they got a really, really rich father. I tell you, that is very similar to our adoption story as Christians. We were orphaned because of sin. And we were serving Satan. We were serving our flesh. And we want to talk about spiritual riches. We were absolutely bankrupt. We didn't have anything righteous that we could offer to God. But because of God's grace, the Bible tells us that but as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God or the children of God. So when you put your faith and trust in Christ as your personal savior, you were entered into a family. And this isn't just a rich family. The Bible also says that we are joint heirs of Christ. We were adopted into a royal family. And the royal family who just happens to be the king of kings. We talk about a contrast of who we were and where we're at now. That's a pretty awesome adoption story. And Paul says that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that we were all adopted into this family. He's not lifting up divisions. He's not lifting up differences. He's not focusing on backgrounds. He's saying we're part of actually now the same nationality, and now we're part of the same family. But this is also a different kind of adoption. You know, most people with biological children, you can kind of pick out who belongs to who. You know, especially since my wife's been taking a lot of pictures and she's doing photo editing. And I, I used to not do this, but I'm sitting next to her as she's doing the photo editing. So I can be like, oh, this person really looks like, you know, their mom or their dad. And, and for my part, I said, you know, I'm really grateful that my kids look like their mom. So they have hope in the future. So this is a, this is a good thing. But this adoption we have is actually a supernatural adoption. What I mean by this is when you get saved, the Holy Spirit of God comes into your life and you are being conformed into the image of Christ. So ironically, the longer that we are family together and corporately together get closer to the Lord, the more people on the outside will be able to look at us and they're going to see a family resemblance. There's going to be spirit, spiritual fruit in our life, and it's going to identify us with one another. And I hope in our Christian lives that can be said about Crosspoint in our lives, that they can look at us collectively and be like, you know, they come from all different types of backgrounds, but I can tell they all resemble their father. And we all come from God the Father. We are all adopted in his family, and every day he is making us more into his image. But we also see that we are his temple. It says, And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. 
So the truths of the word of God were passed down from the apostles and prophets and Jesus Christ himself as being the chief cornerstone. If you don't know what that means, the cornerstone is the first stone that is laid down to make sure that the house or the building will be perfectly square and the shape it needs to be in because the cornerstone determines everything else. So we have the words coming from the prophets, and as Christians, you have the cornerstone laid in your life, so we have the standard of how we should live, but then God says he takes us as individual pieces. We can think of our lives as individual building blocks in the hand of God, and he puts us together cohesively. He's building a masterpiece. He's building his church. You can also call it his assembly. A little bit of a play on words there. God is putting us together. And when you got saved, you were given a spiritual gift. And when you were part of a local body, we are not just fellow citizens. We are a family of God, and he's given us all spiritual gifts so that we can build each other up and minister to each other. Because while there are certain philosophies creeping into churches that are breaking down relations, can I tell you, the word of God teaches us that we actually need each other. If you're part of the local body, God has you here for a purpose. God wants to use you. He wants to use your life. He wants to use you to build other people up and to allow other people to build you up. That's why it's so great to be part of the church. But the big question is, with everything that we've seen so far and how God brings about unity and how Paul wasn't, he wasn't in agreement with the philosophies that are being taught in churches and in secular institutions today regarding how racism should be handled. He wasn't in agreement at all. He wasn't condoning racism. In fact, he would condemn it, but the way he would heal it was through the message of the gospel. It was being done by the grace of God in someone's life because racism is brought about by sin and transforming that person's heart so that sin can be repented of, but then also leaving a pathway to redemption and reconciliation between people because once we are forgiven by God, then we can forgive each other. We don't have to hold sin over each other's heads. We can actually live in peace with God and with each other. So the question is, how does God view us? Well, Galatians 3.28 gives us the perfect verse for this. It says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond, talking about someone who's in slavery, nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. When you are in Christ Jesus, this is not saying that God doesn't understand there's a difference between male and female and between different nationalities. It's saying before the eyes of God, when you are in Jesus Christ, he looks at everybody equally. We all have value. So it's a mistake to think, though, and let the world tell us that we need to apologize for how we were born. It's a mistake to allow the world, if you're a Christian, to define who you are, because you truly are in Jesus Christ. But I will also say, on, when it comes to how we were born, regardless of our background, regardless of our ethnicity, the Bible says that we were fearfully and wonderfully made. The Bible says that we are actually image bearers of God. He made us into our own image into his own image. And this idea that's being promoted in society that we really need to segregate, that we really need to separate people and define them by their races, it's almost foolish because the Bible says that we are all part of one race. We all come from the same blood. And if we go far back enough in the genealogy of the Bible, we're actually all physically, thankfully, distantly, family. I'm not talking West Virginia stuff here. 
But we are also close because of the Holy Spirit of God. Spiritually, family. Physically, we go far back enough. We're all related. The Apostle Paul was trying to make sure people weren't finding their identity in what the world around them was saying. He wanted to make sure people knew that their identity was found in Jesus Christ, that they were accepted, that they were loved, that they were chosen, that they were forgiven, that they have a new nationality, that they've been adopted by the King of Kings. That is your identity if you're a child of God. Can I tell you, though, if you're not a Christian, this can be your identity because Jesus Christ died for you. And if you will honestly believe that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, that he lived a perfect life, he fulfilled all righteousness. It's not that he just didn't sin. He did everything that the law required. And then instead of being rewarded for it, he died on the cross to pay for our sins so the righteousness of his life could be applied to our account. And it's not just a matter, again, of going from a place called hell to a place called heaven because he doesn't just change our direction. He changes who we are in the inside. He'll give you a new heart. He'll give you a new life. He'll give you a new path. You'll have reconciliation. The hostility has been slain by Christ on the cross, and so that relationship with God can be restored. And then after that, because of the power and grace of God, our relationship from man to man can also be restored. And if that's you today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, can I tell you, you have that opportunity today if you'll put your faith in him. Maybe you are a Christian today, and sometimes we like to bury our head in, our, in the sand and think, okay, well, we don't have any sins, and I don't want to identify with any of the problems that are out there in the world. The truth is, is sometimes we can be part of the problem. And as Christians, we need to be willing again to repent of those sins as the Holy Spirit reveals them in our life, call out the sins when we see them, but also be willing to forgive people when we're sinned against. That's what biblical reconciliation is. It leaves a pathway to redemption. We don't have to continually to condemn each other, and we don't have to continually live as if we're condemned by God or by man, because God has forgiven us. And if you're having an identity crisis today, can I tell you, you are accepted in Christ. He loves you. You are one of his children. The world's going to try to define who you are, perhaps things that are taught at school, perhaps things you watch on TV that perhaps make you feel maybe even subhuman because of the thing, some of the things that we're teaching. But yet the Bible tells us that we are more and conquerors in him. We have a new identity. We are in Jesus Christ and we are accepted in him.